there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and abuse that some listeners may find offensive. We advise extreme caution to listeners under 13. July 27th, 2008 was a warm, windy day in Boston, Massachusetts. Thunder rumbled in the distance, clouds gathered overhead. In the posh neighborhood of Back Bay, short, affable 47-year-old Clark Rockefeller strolled with his seven-year-old daughter, Snooks, ignoring the signs of a coming storm. Despite his happy demeanor and impressive surname, Clark was in a world of trouble. A few months earlier, his ex-wife had trounced him in a contentious divorce. Now, she had full custody of Snooks, while Clark was reduced to just three supervised visits a year. Reminding him of this bitter fact, a court-ordered social worker, Howard Yaffe, ambled behind them, watching their every move. But Howard wasn't observing his charges closely enough. In the next moment, Clark turned onto a side street where an SUV was idling. As they approached the car, he distracted Howard, then shoved him hard onto the curb. Then, Clark jumped into the vehicle with his daughter and sped off. Howard was dazed but uninjured. He grabbed for his phone and immediately dialed Snooks's mother, Sandra Boss. She rushed to the scene where a crowd of police officers gathered. In a panic, she told the cops that they would never find her ex-husband. When the officers asked her why not, Sandra lamented, because he's not who he says he is. Clark Rockefeller, the man Sandra thought she knew, once even loved, was an imposter. He was Christian Gerhardt's writer, a manipulative criminal who'd spent his entire life shifting between a series of fake identities. And Sandra was certain, now that he had their daughter, he was about to disappear forever. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're wrapping up the story of Christian Gerhardsreiter. This German imposter conned dozens of Americans and potentially countless more out of housing, wealth, and prestige over the course of his 30-year scam spree. In part one, we covered Christian's journey from a blue-collar town in Bavaria, Germany, to a life of leisure in San Marino, California. But his newfound lifestyle was abruptly cut short when someone threatened to expose his facade and Christian murdered them. This week, we'll examine how Christian left his dark deeds in San Marino behind and continued to climb the American social ladder. He adopted the false identity of Clark Rockefeller and managed to marry brilliant Manhattan executive Sandra Boss. And finally, we'll see how Christian's controlling nature led to his undoing when Sandra grew tired of his tricks and decided to fight fire with fire. In February of 1985, newlyweds John and Linda Sows vanished from San Marino, California without a trace. At the time of their disappearance, they were living with John's mother, Dee Dee. Strangely, she never reported the couple as missing. This was because Dee Dee believed she knew exactly where John and Linda were, on a top secret mission for the US government. Dee Dee had received all of her intel from the bizarre tenant in her guest house, Christopher Mountbatten Chichester, aka Christian Gerhardt's writer. And Christopher assured her that John and Linda were just fine. It wasn't until Christopher also vanished a few months later in April of 1985 that Dee Dee finally contacted the police. But unfortunately, by then, it was too late. John and Linda were gone forever. And the man who'd so diligently provided her with updates on their safety was making his way to a new home, preparing to take on an entirely new identity. On June 12, 1985, 24-year-old Christian drove up to a post office in the posh commuter village of Greenwich, Connecticut in a Nissan pickup truck. Years later, locals who remembered the vehicle were shocked to learn that the truck didn't belong to Christian. Instead, it was registered to California resident and murder victim, John Sows. Christian hopped out of the pickup and went into the Greenwich post office. Inside, he asked the mail clerk to open a P.O. box under the name of Christopher Crow. This was Christian Gerhardt's writer's newest persona and also his latest crime, identity theft. Because unlike Christian's other identities, Christopher Crow was an actual person. The real Christopher Crow was a television writer and producer on the 1985 reboot of the classic series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Christian, an avid Hitchcock fan, had simply lifted his name from the credits but he was easily able to impersonate Crow for two reasons. One, Christian had a brilliant memory, which allowed him to absorb and recite a massive catalog of Hitchcock trivia. And two, 
the citizens of Greenwich wanted to believe that their new, eccentric neighbor was a famous Hollywood producer. The latter, people's wish to believe, is a key component of every con. And, according to Duke historian Edward Ballison, this suspension of disbelief may be more prevalent in America than anywhere else because the US was, as he put it, founded on the idea of invention. He wrote, Many of the world's most expensive and ambitious frauds have occurred in America because openness to innovation has always meant openness to creative deception. Perhaps this is why Christian gravitated toward America to begin with, and it certainly helps explain why the residents of Greenwich, many of whom were educated and affluent citizens, didn't question Christian's pedigree. They did, however, wonder about their new neighbor's plans for the future. What was the producer of a famous TV series doing in Connecticut? Shouldn't he be in Hollywood or in New York, where the show was being filmed? But Christian had a ready answer to these questions. Naturally, he couldn't tell his listeners the truth, that his big Hollywood dreams had ended in murder. Instead, he adopted the role of a jaded hotshot producer, claiming he was simply bored with show business. Now, he told them, he was getting into the finance industry. In order to realize his Wall Street dreams, Christian employed a familiar set of steps. After choosing his home base, a wealthy enclave with a lot of senior residents, the young German used one of his tried-and-true tactics – networking. Just as he had in other towns, Christian joined a prestigious church and spread the word about his desires – free housing and a foot in the door on Wall Street. It didn't take long for him to hit pay dirt. A wealthy church member soon invited the young man to stay in his guest house, presumably for little to no rent, and another hooked Christian up with a job at a financial management firm in Greenwich, S.N. Phelps. At the time, S.N. Phelps was one of the most highly regarded investment firms on the East Coast. And by the end of 1985, with no college degree or financial knowledge to speak of, Christian Gerhardt's writer joined the company's ranks. The so-called producer was well on his way to a new career. Throughout 1986 and early 1987, Christian stayed on at SN Phelps, trying to work his way up the company ladder. However, in mid-1987, Christian's false identity finally caught up to him. He was let go from SN Phelps when they realized he was using a fake social security number. And Christian didn't just make up any old number on his employment paperwork. He borrowed the data from an actual person, David Berkowitz, better known as the serial killer Son of Sam. It was a strange but clearly deliberate choice. Was Christian secretly proud of killing John and Linda Sows? Did he use the ID of a murderer to mock authorities for their inability to find him? We may never know the reason behind Christian's decision, and even though his facade was nearly exposed as a result, it's clear that the con man wasn't the least bit deterred 
from a life of crime. Immediately after losing his job, Christian set out to find his next mark. By now he was 26 and had been living in Greenwich for two years. During that period, he'd continued building his reputation as former TV producer Christopher Crowe. But eventually, Christian decided to add something else to his backstory. He started claiming that he once ran a multi-million dollar charity called the Battenberg Crow von Vetten Family Foundation. Like most of Christian's stories, this was a total fabrication. But it served his purpose in two ways. One, it told people he was capable of managing large sums of money. And two, it implied that his family was connected to the Battenbergs and von Vettens, both former German dynasties. Just as he had when he lived with Didi Sos in San Marino, the con man was using false claims of nobility to tap into his target's ambitions. And once again, Christian found his next mark at church. Local bonds mogul, Don Sheehan. Sheehan was a 60-year-old former Goldman Sachs executive who now ran the New York branch of a trading company called Nico Securities. According to Bob Brusker, a former chief economist at Nico, Sheehan was taken by people who seemed to be blue-blooded. He wasn't the type of guy who would necessarily check references. This made the executive an ideal target for Christian, who had already spent years conning affluent people into thinking he came from royalty. So by using memorized data about the bond market, as well as the lie about his family foundation, Christian convinced Sheehan to hire him as vice president of corporate bonds for Nico Securities. This was a position of enormous responsibility, and it only took a few months for Christian's new colleagues to realize the 26-year-old had no idea what he was doing. And so, Christian's time at Nico Securities was short-lived. Less than a year later, in early 1988, he was fired from the firm. However, losing his job made little difference to the con man. While at Nico, he had charmed a colleague 27-year-old Mihoko Manabe, into falling in love with him and promptly moved into her New York apartment. Christian didn't need a paycheck when he had free housing in Manhattan. But as he contemplated a bright new future in the Big Apple, back in San Marino, Christian's dark past was coming to light. When Didi Sows first reported John and Linda missing in 1985, the case had quickly gone cold. Didi never recovered from the shock of losing John and Linda. She believed wholeheartedly that the couple was still alive and had simply chosen not to keep in touch. According to researchers M. Virginia Sprang, John S. McNeil, and Roosevelt Wright Jr., this is a fairly common expression of grief and especially among those who have lost loved ones to violent deaths or murder. In their article entitled Psychological Changes After the Murder of a Significant Other, the authors state, Denial acts as a buffer against sudden, unexpected news and allows the bereaved to maintain a certain degree of saneness. Denial is usually a temporary defense. But when a murder occurs, 
the period of shock and denial is much more intense. Though John and Linda's murder was unconfirmed, the possibility that Dee Dee unwittingly exposed her son to his own killer was likely too much for her to bear. So instead, the grieving woman convinced herself that John and Linda had simply abandoned her. And so, hurt and resentful, Dee Dee wrote John out of her will. However, no one realized this until Dee Dee passed away from a heart attack on February 2nd, 1988. John's disinheritance created a new surge of interest in the So's disappearance case. While divvying up Dee Dee's property, family friends remembered that John owned a brand new Nissan pickup. The truck was still at the house when John and Linda disappeared, but now that Dee Dee was gone, they realized it was nowhere to be found. San Marino police mounted a search for the missing vehicle. It didn't take long before a tip from the California DMV led them to Greenwich, Connecticut, where someone had recently tried to sell the truck without registration. Hoping this was a clue as to John and Linda's whereabouts, investigators contacted Greenwich PD detective Dan Allen to try to track down the vehicle. Eventually, Allen got in touch with one of the car's interested buyers. They gave him the seller's phone number and name. Christopher Crow. Allen called the number, but instead of reaching the alleged Crow, he got Mihoko Manabe. Mihoko told the detective that Christopher was out, but she'd have him call back as soon as possible. Hours later, when Mihoko told Christian about the call, he panicked. He told his girlfriend that the man who'd called was not a detective at all. Instead, he was a member of a gang that had previously threatened Christian's family. In a flurry of histrionics, Christian explained to her that this meant he was in danger and he needed Mahoko's help to go into hiding. Sadly, the young translator believed him. At her lover's insistence, she found them a new Manhattan apartment, helped him dye his hair and eyebrows, and even took over paying all of the bills so that nothing official remained in his name. Meanwhile, Christian began making plans to change his identity once again. Coming up, We'll see how Christian Gerhardt's writer re-emerged into New York society as a member of the Rockefeller clan and won the heart of one of Wall Street's most eligible ladies. Now back to the story. From 1985 to 1988, con artist Christian Gerhardt's writer attempted to get ahead in life the old-fashioned way, by getting a job. Claiming he had once run a multi-million dollar charitable foundation, Christian conned a Wall Street firm into hiring him as a vice president. But eventually, his lies caught up with him, and by 1988, the law was catching up to him as well. With a Connecticut detective hot on his trail, he went into hiding. And so, from 1988 to 1992, Christian and his various aliases vanished almost completely from the public record. 
During these four years, he rarely left his girlfriend, Mihoko Manabe's Manhattan apartment, spending his waking hours fiddling around on a computer and watching TV. Meanwhile, Christian continued to tell Mihoko that he was in danger, but the longer he lived under her so-called protection, the more resentful he became. Mihoko stated that Christian began to abuse her emotionally. She says, He was very caustic and derogatory. He insisted that I disassociate myself from my friends and family. According to psychologist Andrea Matthews, verbal attacks and forced isolation are common ways that abusers attempt to dominate their partners, and they often do so because they feel insecure or powerless. Though Mihoko may not have realized it at the time, she technically held all of the power in the relationship. The cops were hot on Christian's trail, and Mihoko could have thrown him out at any time. So it's quite possible Christian abused her to retain control over her. In a way, it worked. Around 1991, Mihoko tired of the mistreatment. But she was so deep under Christian's influence that she couldn't evict him from the apartment. Instead, she moved out of her own home, allowing Christian to stay until he was good and ready to leave. This gave the conman the time he needed to transform himself once more. In 1992, after four years under the radar, 31-year-old Christian re-emerged into New York society as the stylish, charming, and utterly fraudulent Clark Rockefeller. As usual, Christian's first move upon taking a new identity was to network, and yet again, he started in a church. In 1992, the 31-year-old joined St. Thomas Church, the magnificent Episcopalian parish in Midtown Manhattan. St. Thomas Church has long been the ecclesiastic home of many influential New York families, including the Vanderbilts, Roosevelts, and, of course, the Rockefellers. Christian told fellow church members that he was a second cousin to the famous David Rockefeller. And, within a few months, the con man had established himself as a member of the elite. He moved quickly to cement himself in this role by marrying one of Manhattan's most eligible ladies, Sandra Boss. Sandra was the 26-year-old daughter of Boeing engineer William Boss and a frequent attendee of St. Thomas's services. At the time they met, she was working at Merrill Lynch while preparing to start her final year at Harvard Business School. For Christian, Sandra represented an opportunity to gain access to the money and prestige of Wall Street without having to work for it. Sandra wasn't too keen on starting a long-term relationship before going back to school in the fall. But Christian was persistent, charming, and attentive. But most importantly, the so-called Rockefeller wasn't put off by her success like other men. According to Sandra, this is exactly what compelled her to date him. A study by the American Association of Retired Persons, or the AARP, found that con artists 
typically start their process by identifying what their victims care about. If Sandra and Christian discussed dating, she may have told him that men were often intimidated by her intelligence. This would have tipped Christian off that praising her intellect was the best way to win her over. And it worked. Throughout the summer of 1993, Christian courted Sandra and made it a point to be supportive of her career. He also tailored his new identity to appeal to Sandra's altruism and hide his gold-digging intentions. He told her that he worked for a non-profit and spoke about wealth as if he didn't care about money at all. Sandra was convinced. By the time she returned to classes at Harvard in the fall, she and Christian were officially an item. Meanwhile, as Sandra and Christian's relationship was heating up, so was the missing persons case of John and Linda Sos. Six long years after the first close call that sent Christian into hiding, a San Marino construction crew brought the past back to light on May 5, 1994. While digging a hole for a swimming pool in Didi So's former backyard, the construction crew heard a strange noise. They halted their bulldozer and looked into the pit and found several plastic shopping bags filled with human bones. Neighbors were convinced these were the remains of the missing John and Linda Sows. Investigators, however, weren't so sure. An examination showed that the bones came from only one individual, a male. But they weren't sure if it was John or not. In 1994, police lacked the technology for proper DNA identification. Furthermore, because the skull was damaged from the bulldozer, they weren't able to conclusively determine the cause of death. Even if this was John, they couldn't say for sure he'd been murdered. Just as quickly as it was reinvigorated, the case of John and Linda Sows slowed to a snail's pace. But back on the East Coast, the primary suspect's love life was shifting into high gear. In the spring of 1994, after about six months of dating long distance, Christian and Sandra were engaged. This was a major coup for the con artist, but it also presented an obvious problem. Sandra knew her fiancé as Clark Rockefeller, not Christian Gerhardt's writer. To avoid exposing his identity, he had to find a way to marry her legally without providing any documentation. The practice scammer soon came up with a solution. Christian told Sandra that he was sick of the materialism at St. Thomas Church and wanted to be married by a more genuine denomination, Quakerism. Not only are Quakers known for the simplicity of their faith, but quite conveniently for Christian, their traditions allowed for couples to get married without documentation. Impressed by her fiancé's high moral standard, Sandra agreed to have the wedding at the Quaker Meeting House in Nantucket, Massachusetts. And on October 14, 1995, the couple was married in a small ceremony. 
After a brief honeymoon in Nantucket, 34-year-old Christian and his 28-year-old bride returned to New York City to start their life together. Sandra went to work for the global consulting firm McKinsey & Company, earning $60,000 a year, over $100,000 today. And Christian stayed home, still claiming to work for a nonprofit but contributing zero financial support. Perhaps at first, Christian was content with his new life with Sandra. But over time, he exhibited the same abusive behavior he'd shown with Mihoko. He cut Sandra off from her friends and family, even insisting that they move from Manhattan to the wealthy enclave of Cornish, New Hampshire, a town 250 miles away. Sandra continued to support her husband, commuting to the city every week for work. But when she came home on the weekends, Christian would often pick fights, screaming at her for hours on end. Sandra believed strongly in the sanctity of marriage, so for years, she worked exhaustively to find a way to resolve their differences. But finally, in the summer of 2000, the 32-year-old executive had enough. She got her own apartment in New York and told Christian she was considering divorce. Christian reacted to this news like a man transformed. The 39-year-old imposter begged Sandra's forgiveness. He showered her with gifts and attention, once again the charming lover he'd been before they married. Sandra didn't fully fall for this, but she let her husband back in enough to have makeup sex. Afterward, she noticed that the condom, their usual method of birth control, had broken. And although she could never be sure, Sandra strongly suspected that Christian had punctured it on purpose. Nine months later, on May 24, 2001, Ray Storro Mills Rockefeller was born. According to neighbors and family friends, Christian spent every waking minute with Ray, or Snooks as he called her. He read to her, played with her at the park, and took her to the library and the movies. He assumed another new role, the perfect doting father. However, once again, there were red flags. One former acquaintance recalled that Christian and Snooks wore matching clothes. Another mentioned that he wouldn't allow his daughter to play with other children for fear they'd give her a disease. As Snooks grew into her toddler years, Sandra became increasingly worried about her daughter's isolation in the small town so far from where she worked. She urged Christian to move back to the city so Snooks could attend school and be around other children. For years, he adamantly refused. But in 2006, when Snooks was five years old, Sandra finally found a way to convince him. Sandra took a job in Boston and invited Christian and Snooks to visit her on day trips. Each time they came to town, she appealed to Christian's infatuation with luxury by treating them to the high life, impressing upon him all the benefits of moving back to the city. The ploy worked. In the summer of 2006, 45-year-old Christian agreed to move to the ultra-exclusive Boston neighborhood 
of Beacon Hill. And in the fall of that year, Snooks was enrolled in the exclusive Southfield School for Girls. Unfortunately, just as Sandra had feared, Snooks adapted poorly to a social setting. She refused to play with other children and threw temper tantrums when she didn't get her way. Concerned administrators reached out to her parents, but Christian fielded all of the school's calls without telling Sandra a thing. Finally, in December of 2006, administrators managed to reach Sandra directly. They told her they'd been trying to contact her about Snooks, but her husband hadn't delivered the messages. Sandra was furious. Realizing that Christian was shutting her out of her own child's life, she decided to leave him for good. On January 17, 2007, after 12 years of marriage, 39-year-old Sandra Boss filed for divorce. But 46-year-old Christian lawyered up immediately. He managed to win joint custody of Snooks during the proceedings, but that wasn't enough. Christian mounted a smear campaign against Sandra, presenting himself as a doting daddy and his wife as a domineering, irrational monster. Sandra worried that Christian might persuade the judge to give him sole custody. But fortunately, she had a strong supporter in her father, William Boss. When he saw how Christian was acting in the divorce, he launched an investigation into Clark Rockefeller. And soon, he came across something very odd. Back in 1993, when Christian first met Sandra's family, he told them that his mother, Anne Carter, had died in an accident. But William discovered that Anne Carter wasn't actually dead. And, stranger still, she'd never heard of Clark Rockefeller. When William shared this news with his daughter, Sandra flew into action. She hired a private investigator to look into her husband's entire past. What they found chilled her to her core. Prior to 1993, the year Sandra and Clark had met, there was no evidence that a Clark Rockefeller had ever existed. Sandra was stunned. If the father of her child wasn't Clark Rockefeller, who was he? Even worse, she now realized that Snooks was in the custody of a con man, and that problem had to be rectified immediately. Coming up, Sandra beats her con artist husband at his own game, and Christian refuses to admit defeat. Now, back to the story. They wouldn't think that's possible to get through life without a social security number or any documentation, but that's what we're faced with trying to find out who really is Clark Rockefeller. In 2007, after 12 years of emotional abuse, 39-year-old Sandra Boss filed for divorce from 46-year-old Christian Gerhardtswriter, a.k.a. Clark Rockefeller. To gain points in the proceedings, Sandra hired a PI to dig up dirt on her ex-husband. She discovered something that rocked her world. Clark Rockefeller, the man she had fallen in love with, never existed. 
she had been supporting a con man for over a decade without even knowing his real name. Some people might have reacted to this news emotionally, but Sandra kept her head. She realized that whoever Clark was, he'd be a greater danger to her and their six-year-old daughter if he knew that she was onto him. So Sandra kept the truth about his fake identity a secret long enough to make a plan. During their divorce hearing, Sandra had noticed that her soon-to-be ex acted uncharacteristically nervous in front of the presiding judge. She now knew this was because Clark had something to hide. And Sandra surmised that he would do anything to keep that secret, even give up custody of his only daughter. So, in the fall of 2007, Sandra filed an affidavit with the probate court, which deals with property during a divorce. The document listed every one of Clark Rockefeller's claims that Sandra could prove was a lie. His legal name, his career in nonprofits, his family background, everything. This forced Christian to either appear in court to refute the document's validity, or to give up his claims to their assets and ultimately to Snooks. It was a brilliant move. Two days later, Christian's lawyer called Sandra to propose a deal. His client would give Sandra full custody of Snooks along with all of the couple's wealth. In exchange, he wanted a million dollars and a written agreement that no further inquiries would be made into his past. Sandra countered the offer. One payment of $800,000 and three eight-hour supervised visits with Snooks a year. Christian agreed. On December 21, 2007, the divorce was official. Two days later, Sandra hopped a plane to London with her daughter. She was unaware that Christian was already planning his counterattack. Four months later, in April of 2008, 47-year-old Christian Gerhardtswriter strolled into a real estate office in Baltimore, Maryland. His hair was dyed red and he wore nautical-inspired clothing. He introduced himself to the realtor, Julie Gocher, as Captain Chip Smith. Julie helped Captain Smith find the perfect home for himself and his daughter, who he said would be joining him soon. And on July 18, 2008, the supposed Chip Smith closed on a house in Baltimore and moved in immediately. One week later, on July 27, Christian checked into the Algonquin Club in Boston under the name Clark Rockefeller. He was met there by social worker Howard Yaffe, who brought Snooks with him for one of Christian's three supervised visits per year. Christian happily took his daughter to the park to play, Howard following right behind them. After the park, the odd bunch decided to grab lunch. Clark was in high spirits as he strolled up to a street crossing with seven-year-old Snooks on his shoulders. He made a comment to Howard about one of the gorgeous historical homes nearby. And the next thing Howard knew, Christian shoved him onto the curb. He then jumped into an idling SUV with Snooks and sped away, 
nearly crushing Howard in the mad dash to escape. Howard immediately understood the gravity of what had happened. He dialed 911, then Sandra, who was waiting anxiously at a hotel nearby. Frantic, she rushed to the scene. Sandra knew that the man who had lied to her for 12 years could easily take her child and vanish forever. She didn't even know his real name. And that was exactly Christian's plan. But when a Rockefeller kidnaps his own daughter, he doesn't disappear. Instead, he becomes one of the biggest news stories in the nation. Investigators continue their efforts to determine Clark Rockefeller's true identity. Police initially thought that he might be trying to flee to Bermuda or Peru even on a yacht docked at Long Island and there were sightings but they turned out to be nothing. I ask you now, please, please bring Snooks back. There has to be a better way for us to solve our differences than this way. Suddenly, Christian's face was plastered on TV screens nationwide in wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Within days, people all over America recognized the kidnapper as someone they'd known under an entirely different name. In Loma Linda, California, Jean and Elma Kellen saw Christian Gerhardt's writer, the hitchhiker they'd picked up in Germany 30 years before. In Berlin, Connecticut, the Savios caught a glimpse of their one-time foreign exchange student, Chris Gerhardt. And in San Marino, Didi So's neighbors knew they were looking at her former tenant, Christopher Mountbatten Chichester. Since the discovery of human bones in Didi So's former backyard 14 years earlier, John and Linda's disappearance case had gone cold. Investigators failed to identify the remains and had never managed to track down the man who took John's truck any further than Greenwich, Connecticut. But now, with the nationwide identification of Christian Gerhardt's writer's many aliases, the California detectives finally put the pieces together. And they were about to come face to face with the man who had eluded them for almost 15 years. In Baltimore, police received a call from realtor Julie Gocha. She identified the kidnapper from the newsreels as Chip Smith, the alleged captain who had bought a house from her only weeks before in cash. She gave police the exact address of the home where Christian and Snooks were staying. So, on August 3rd, 2008, one week after the kidnapping, FBI agents surrounded Christian's Baltimore hideout. Afraid the con man might harm his daughter if he knew he was being followed, they waited until he emerged from the house on his own. The moment he was in their sights, one of the agents shouted, Clark! Christian stopped and looked. Officers suddenly swarmed into the yard and wrestled him to the ground. At last, after 30 long years, the great imposter was under arrest. The moment Sandra heard the news, she burst into tears of relief. However, once she was reunited with her daughter, her thoughts returned to the question that had been haunting her for months. 
Who was Clark, really? It would be years before authorities could piece together the answer. Christian's trial for parental kidnapping and assault began on May 28, 2009. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And perhaps in a play to support this claim, the 48-year-old conman maintained that Clark Rockefeller was his true identity. According to fraud expert and author Les Henderson, con artists work very hard to come across as smooth, professional, and successful. They know that being themselves hurts business. In Christian's case, being himself would mean admitting that he had willfully lied to thousands of people, not to mention provide evidence of his sanity. Insisting that he was a Rockefeller was an outright rejection of reality, and therefore just another way to prove his innocence. Keeping up the con was essential for Christian to get what he wanted, exoneration and retribution. Despite his best efforts, however, the jury wasn't fooled. On June 12, 2009, they convicted Christian of the kidnapping of a minor and battery with a dangerous weapon, that is, the SUV that almost ran Howard Yaffe over. After a decades-long performance as a jet-setting millionaire, Christian Gerhardt's writer was sentenced to six to eight years behind bars. For Sandra Boss and her daughter, justice had finally been served. But back in San Marino, the families of John and Linda Sows were still waiting. The investigation into their murders went on for two long years after Christian's conviction. Updated technology finally matched the bones to John Sows. But Linda's remains were never recovered. However, investigators held two key pieces of evidence. One was John Sosa's skull. A new analysis proved that two of the fractures were inflicted before the victim was deceased. Investigators identified the cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head. At last, they could officially rule his death a homicide. They also found evidence in the plastic bags John's remains were found in. They were shopping bags from university bookstores. One was from the University of Southern California in LA. The other was from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. But the design of the University of Wisconsin logo on the bag was outdated. It hadn't been used since the late 70s, when Christian Gerhardt's writer was a student there. Finally, in 2011, Investigators had enough evidence to charge Christian Gerhardt's writer with the murder of John Sows. During the trial, prosecutors depicted him as a serial liar prone to fits of rage. They suggested that Christian and John got into an argument. When John refused to bow to Christian's demands, the fraudster struck him in the head, killing him. This was only a well-constructed theory. And Christian, of course, vehemently denied every detail. Nevertheless, on August 15, 2013, an LA County court found 52-year-old Christian 
guilty of the first-degree murder of John Souls. He was sentenced to 27 years to life. He is currently in custody at San Quentin Prison in California. Today, despite having spent over a decade behind bars, Christian continues to maintain his innocence. During an interview on the Today Show, when asked if he had killed John and Linda Sows, Christian simply replied, My entire life, I have always been a pacifist. I am a Quaker, and I believe in nonviolence. And I can fairly certainly say that I have never hurt anyone. That final statement might be Christian Gerhardt's writer's biggest lie of all. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artists was written by Megan Dane. I'm Alastair Murden. Hold up. 